0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So take our Bibles and turn to the scripture reading Hebrews 2, and we're going to read from verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 6. And our text is also found in this reading in the verses 1 to 2 of chapter 3. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, "'What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels.'" You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future, But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So our text is Hebrews 3, 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Love Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, in his recent book, Christless Christianity, United Reformed minister and professor Michael Horton identifies a major problem in North American Christianity. Much of it misses the boat on who Christ is, what he has done, many times even ignores Jesus Christ completely. Spurred on by his diagnosis, many are now calling for preaching that focuses on Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself in the Bible. And of course, this isn't the first time that such calls have been made. After all, this was one of the fundamental complaints of the Reformation about late medieval Christianity. Like today, Jesus was mentioned, but he was no longer central, and he was no longer preached or believed in as he was revealed in the Bible. And so we hear Martin Luther saying things like, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. It is most necessary that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. According to Luther, we must never take the gospel for granted, never assume it. We must never forget to constantly preach Christ crucified, the Savior of sinners. And over the last four years, I've observed that many of you share the perspective of Martin Luther. I've been greatly encouraged by that. You want to hear Christ proclaimed from the Scriptures. As you come to church each Sunday, you're eager to hear good news from the Word of God. You've echoed the words of the Greeks who came to Philip in John 12, 21, and said, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. This afternoon, my purpose is to encourage you from the Word of God to continue hungering for Christ and for the gospel which reveals him. My purpose is to help you keep your focus on what is most important. As I say farewell, I do so with the hope that each of you would find your only comfort in life and in death only in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what our text from Hebrews 3, 1-2 to directs us to do this afternoon. I preach to you God's word with this theme then, Fix Your Thoughts on Jesus. And we'll see that this involves, first of all, confessing who we are, but secondly, and most importantly, confessing the person and work of the Savior. Well, we don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. There are a lot of theories. Some say Paul. Others say Apollos. Others think it was someone else. Whoever it was, it doesn't really matter all that much. Much more important is the fact that the letter... We often call it a letter, but it doesn't really seem to be a letter at all. Apart from the ending of Hebrews, it reads a lot like a sermon. A sermon from the days of the apostolic church. And quite likely it was. And today when we begin our sermons, we customarily address the congregation as Beloved Congregation of Jesus Christ our Lord, or or words to that effect. This is our custom. It's our tradition. But it's also biblical. Eminently biblical. Through the New Testament, we find letters addressed to churches in a similar way. When you address a church, you address them as the people of God, as the congregation belonging to Christ, as those who profess the name of Christ. Now, the sermon that is the book of Hebrews doesn't begin this way. Yet, throughout this book, we do find God's people addressed in this proper apostolic manner. And one of those places is right here at the beginning of chapter 3. The author of Hebrews calls his readers, holy brothers. Holy brothers. Those two words are pregnant. And we need to consider what they mean carefully. Holy brothers. Now, these words build on what was said in chapter 2. There we find all kinds of statements that, as believers, we are part of a spiritual family. Verse 11 of chapter 2 says, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Loved ones, there's a beautiful and comforting truth here. We are members of God's family. Because of Christ and his redemptive work, we have been adopted as God's own children. That's amazing. And there's more here to be amazed at. You might be wondering why it says brothers and sons throughout these chapters. Why brothers and sons? Well, you know, this isn't meant to exclude sisters and daughters not meant to exclude the girls and the women. Rather, it's meant to highlight the fact, to emphasize the fact that we are privileged children. We are those who will receive the inheritance of the Father, whether we're male or female. And you can see that when elsewhere in chapter two, the writer speaks of children in the generic sense. So we are God's children who will receive an inheritance. And just so happened in the days of the apostles, those were sons. We'll receive an inheritance. What is that inheritance exactly? Well, Hebrews 1.14 says that we will inherit salvation. In other words, we will live forever reconciled to our God and Father in heaven. And this is eternal. This is something that cannot and will not be taken away from us. And closely connected with that is our inheritance of the new heavens and new earth. God will give us a land in which to dwell forever. A land which will both be ours and his. A land in which he will dwell with us in perfect communion. There's a glorious inheritance waiting for us. And that's expressed when we're called holy brothers by the Holy Spirit. Here in Hebrews 3.1, we're younger brothers of our Lord Jesus, part of God's family. Brothers, and then we're also holy. That simply means that we've been set apart by God from the world. God has claimed us for his own. We belong to him, he says. We belong to his family. There's something special about his people. And here we can think to baptism as well. Jesse Hoekstra received the sign and seal of God's covenant in baptism. God has claimed him for his own. This afternoon, God said to Jesse and to all of us, this one is mine. This one is set apart for me. Now, as he grows up, and his parents raise him in that faith, as he's instructed in that faith, He needs to see himself in the light of that claim. And he has to respond in faith. He'll have to say, and all of us who have been baptized, we need to say it too. Yes, I belong to God. Through his covenant of grace, he has claimed me for his own. I acknowledge that. I believe that because of Christ and because of everything he has done, and only because of Christ, I am his. And I will forever be. All of us need to say exactly that same thing. God has claimed us for his own. God has made beautiful promises to us in Christ Jesus. We all need to respond to those promises in faith. And all that is captured in those two beautiful pregnant words, holy brothers. And brothers and sisters, confessing that we are holy brothers of our Lord Jesus will also bear fruit in a godly life. If we confess that indeed we are holy brothers, that's a statement of faith. We take God at his word. And such faith cannot help but bear fruit. God says we are holy. God says we are set apart from sin and the world. So it must be in our lives. We're holy. That doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're free from the struggle against sin. You're not an unbeliever because you struggle with sin. Rather, your struggle is part of what makes you a Christian. God's declaration of our holiness is also meant to be our declaration of war. War against sin. God says we're holy. Now we're going to make every effort to be who we are. And so the writer to the Hebrews says that we are holy brothers, and so we confess ourselves to be, and all because of Christ. But he also says that we are those who share in the heavenly calling. And these are also words that draw our praise upwards to God in amazement at His grace. We share in the heavenly calling. That means two things. First of all, it means that we have been called by God who lives in heaven. God has called us out of the world. He has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. God has called us with his word to believe him and to follow him. God constantly calls us to repent and believe the gospel. Our calling comes from heaven, and it is to be God's children in this age and in the age to come. So that's in the first place. A call from heaven. But second of all, it's also a call to heaven. According to Hebrews eleven sixteen, there is a better country. A heavenly one. God has prepared a city for us there. And it is that city which is part of our eternal inheritance. A city whose builder and maker is God. A city whose splendor will take your breath away when you see it someday. Its beauty will be the beauty of God, the beauty of holiness. We'll delight in that. And we share this heavenly calling with all of God's people. We share it. It's not just a calling for one or two people, but it's something that's shared by many, something held in common. The heavenly calling exists in the communion of saints. And that calling needs a response. And that's what we find next in our text with the command to fix your thoughts on Jesus. The calling from and to heaven leads us to confess the person and work of our Savior. And here we have to take a step back again to chapter 2. We have to do that because of that one word at the beginning of chapter 3. Therefore. You can't glance over that. Whenever you're studying the Bible whether by yourself or in a group, and you see the word, therefore, you always need to ask, what is it there for? What comes before? What is the basis for the teaching to come? And as we look back to chapter 2 then, Christ is portrayed as the one who suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The Lord Jesus is the author of our salvation, made perfect through suffering. He shared in our humanity so that by His death He might destroy him who holds the power of death. It is the devil and provide freedom for us. He was made like us so that He could be a merciful and faithful high priest. He became one of us so that He could make the sacrifice that would turn God's wrath away from us. That he would be our propitiation. Propitiation. You don't hear that word very much anymore. It's a word we need to recover. Propitiation means to turn away God's wrath. Jesus Christ was our propitiation. By so doing, he would bring reconciliation with God. And today... Because he has suffered during his temptations on this earth. He intercedes for us who are being tempted. Now, brothers and sisters, all of that is the basis or the reason for the therefore that starts chapter 3. The Holy Spirit says, because Christ is all of that, because he has done all of that, fix your thoughts on him. Focus your attention on Christ Jesus. Don't get distracted by other things, but be obsessed with him. He is to be the sun for your solar system. Everything has to center on him. Everything has to turn around him. Why? Because Christ is your salvation and your hope and your life before God. Hebrews 3.1 tells us to fix our thoughts on Christ. And it tells us to do that in two specific ways. Now, there are other ways in which we could fix our thoughts on Christ. For instance, we could think of him as our king, or as the husband of his bride, the church. We could add others. But here there are only two. And these two are closely related. In fact, you can't separate them. Christ as apostle and high priest. You could even say Christ the apostolic high priest. As I mentioned a moment ago, his high priestly work is already mentioned in chapter 2. Now Christ's high priestly work comes in two parts. As a high priest, he offered a sacrifice. He has redeemed us by the one sacrifice he made on the cross. He turned God's wrath away with the sacrifice of his body and blood. As our perfect substitute, the Lord Jesus has paid for all our debts towards God. He has made the complete satisfaction for us. And today, as we fix our thoughts on him, we can be confident... That we are forgiven. That all our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We can be sure that God has taken all of our sins and thrown them into the depths of the sea. Fixing our thoughts on Christ. Resting and trusting in Him. We can be certain. Yes, certain that there is no barrier between ourselves and God. No barrier in our relationship with our Father in Heaven. Loved ones, we need to believe this. We need to hold on to this always. Never ever begin to think that some sin is too great to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. Never forget that there is forgiveness for you at the cross of Christ. No matter what you've done or how far you've strayed, keep coming back to God in Christ. Christ. And you'll never be turned away. That's because he's the high priest. Your high priest. Who has made the sacrifice you could never make for yourself. Keep trusting him. That's the first part of Christ's high priestly work. Offering the sacrifice. The second part is that our great high priest also lives to make intercession for us before the Father. Today, right now, the Son of God, who 2,000 years ago walked on the face of this earth, today He is at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And He's there, not for Himself, but for us. And you know, those are two of the most beautiful words in the Christian faith. For us. Christ is there in heaven for us, for our benefit. When we experience the brokenness of this fallen world, Christ is for us. When we struggle with sinful desires, Christ is for us. When we pray, Christ is for us. When we don't know what to pray or we can no longer pray because of age or because of sickness. Christ is for us. He speaks for us when we can't speak for ourselves anymore. He sustains us with his Holy Spirit and helps us in our pilgrimage on this earth. This is something that he has always done. Something that he still does. Something that he will always do. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was made just once. But his priestly intercession is something that will not stop. It'll keep going until the dawn of the age to come. Loved ones, we are so blessed to have such a Savior. A Savior who loves us so much that he is always on our side, that he is always by our side. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the high priest whom we confess. Then the author of this book adds that he was and he is a faithful high priest. Find that in verse 2. The Lord Jesus was and is faithful to the one who appointed him, to God the Father. And here the comparison is made to Moses. Moses. Moses was faithful among God's people. He was faithful in God's house. However, the Lord Jesus is superior to Moses because he is faithful over God's house. Moses was faithful in God's house. Jesus is faithful over God's house. He's redeemed the house with his body and blood. He's the one who builds the house. But he's also the one who rules the house, who protects the house. In other words, the Lord Jesus is faithful. He is loyal to God in carrying out his role of intercession. He'll never abandon the house or bring down words of judgment on the house. The same mouth that prays for God's people will never condemn those people. The Lord Jesus is the faithful high priest whom we confess, the one upon whom we ought to fix our thoughts. And closely connected with his being a high priest is his being an apostle. That's an unusual way to describe Christ. In fact, this place here in Hebrews 3 is the only place in the Bible where Jesus is described as being an apostle. Now an apostle is literally someone who is sent out. Sent out with a commission to do something. The apostles of Christ were sent out with the great commission in Matthew 28. But here in Hebrews, the Lord Jesus himself is called an apostle. That's because God sent him into this world. And here you can think of 1 John 4, 9. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as the propitiation for our sins. There in that passage, you see the direct connection between Christ being sent, his being an apostle, and his being a high priest. His propitiation, his sacrifice, which has turned away God's wrath from us. And that's all there in First John 4.9. Lord Jesus was sent into this world with a high priestly task and calling. And he also recognized that himself in his high priestly prayer in John 17. In verses 3 and 4, the Lord Jesus said, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. The Lord Jesus was sent to this earth and he willingly agreed to come. Before the foundation of the world, he agreed to come as our high priest to make the ultimate sacrifice in our place and then afterwards to make intercession. And in this too, he was faithful. He was a loyal apostle, a loyal son in the Father's house. He took on our human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he became incarnate by the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. Thus began his life as one of us. At his incarnation, he started off down the road of humiliation. He did what needed to be done, suffering his whole life, but especially at the end. Why? Why? Also, that many sons would be brought to glory. All for us. The Lord Jesus is the faithful apostle sent into this world to be our Redeemer. Loved ones, look to him in true faith. Hang all your hope and expectation on him alone, both for this life and the life to come. Now that's the bottom line of this passage. That's what the Holy Spirit is telling us here. Then someone might say, okay, pastor, but what do we have to do now? What is this passage saying about living as a Christian? Loved ones, let me explain. This is what we call a foundational text. It lays the foundation for a Christian life. There's that general aspect that I mentioned earlier of being holy brothers, being who you are. But this passage doesn't give the details of how to live as a Christian. That's not the emphasis here. We find those teachings elsewhere in the Bible. This text is about what's most important for believers. What is foundational, which is to be constantly looking to Christ. Constantly being reminded about the gospel of grace. This passage is about being impressed with your Savior so that we are motivated to live a holy and godly life. You see, it's all about Christian Faith 101. That's a course that we need to repeat. We need to take it over and over and over again until our dying day. Brothers and sisters, see how the author of Hebrews works here. He clearly states that he's addressing Christians. He calls them holy brothers. He states that they share the heavenly calling. But he doesn't take anything for granted. He tells these holy brothers, these people who share the heavenly calling, to keep on fixing their thoughts on Jesus. He doesn't work like many people today who say, well, you know, Mr. Hebrews author, we already know all that. You don't have to keep telling us that. Just tell us how we should live now. Just give some practical teaching and quit repeating yourself. Now He says, you may be a Christian, and you may have been a Christian your whole life long, but you still need the gospel. You never outgrow your need for it. There's never a day or a time in your life when you don't need the, to hear the reminder to fix your thoughts on Christ. That's something you're always going to need. That's something I'm always going to need. That's something each of us needs constantly. And loved ones, it's the preaching of the gospel which powers a Christian life. When we are impressed with God's grace, smitten by his love, in wonder at what Christ has done, what happens in our hearts? Aren't our hearts filled with gratitude? Aren't our hearts filled with love and a desire to, to please our Father? Don't we want to do the will of the Lord? Don't we want to make much of Him with our words and deeds and win our neighbors? When we understand the grace proclaimed in the gospel, we don't aim for obedience because we think we're going to earn something from God that will make him love us more by what we do. No. We aim for obedience because we love him. And from our hearts, we want to please him. And Jesus is not only our Savior, but also our Lord. Lord. And those two aspects of his person and work are inseparable. If he's truly our Redeemer, then he must also be the master of our lives. But it all begins with the gospel. And the gospel must never be taken for granted or assumed. Now history, history teaches us that churches that assume the gospel or take it for granted will surely lose it. And usually they lose it within one generation. That's all it takes. Now, if you think about that for just a minute, it makes sense. Because if what children and young people hear in the church is only about how to live a Christian life, only how to be obedient to God, and they never or seldom hear about the gospel, they'll soon think that Christianity is all about us and our deeds and our obedience and our lifestyle. The gospel will be eclipsed. It will disappear and will just become a club, a club of like-minded people who are trying to live a moral life. The gospel is a precious treasure, a pearl of great price. And to lose it is a horrific tragedy. And so as this phase of the life of this church closes and I move on, and I bid you farewell, let me encourage you to fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Brothers and sisters, continue to keep Christ central and the gospel central. Because doing that in faith, we will give glory and honor to God, our creator, redeemer, and renewer, Father, Son, And Holy Spirit, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the apostle and high priest whom we confess. We thank you for agreeing to come into this world to be our redeemer. We praise you for your faithfulness and loyalty And we thank you that through it, you have brought many sons to glory. We're so grateful that we can be counted among your brothers. Thank you that we have a place at our Father's table. Thank you that we have a share in the inheritance to be fully revealed in the age to come. Your good news captivates our minds, cheers our hearts, and motivates our wills. Please help us all with your spirit so that we would never assume the gospel or begin to take it for granted. Help all of us to fix our thoughts on you. We pray in your name and for your glory together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web.